You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. series summer in the psalms and we're in psalm 16 this morning if you'd go ahead and turn uh, to uh, god's word psalm chapter 16 we're going to be looking at david at one of the most difficult and fearful times in his life i don't i don't often uh, feel scared but i never feel safe and i'm not using safe to define what some people call safety where nobody ever says anything negative or there's the absence of conflict. I'm not talking about the safe places that students are trying to create on college campuses where there's never any opposition. I mean literal safety, literal safety. If, if you're honest about the world that we live in, you've got to conclude that this world is not a very safe place. Is that the way it is for you when you're driving, when you're shopping, um, when you're trying to lay your head down and go to sleep at night? The world is not a very safe place. And in, in the text this morning, we come to David the psalmist. Now, how did we get to David? We got to David, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got Joseph, and Joseph and, and God's people went into Egypt and Pharaoh forgot about Joseph, and so there is this time period of about 400 years of captivity, and all of a sudden Moses comes on the scene to go in and say, let my people go, and God's people then leave Egypt, and they begin to move toward the promised land and spend some time journeying through the desert to get there. Moses dies. Joshua then comes on the scene as the leader. They're trying to get established in the land. The land's being divided up. And then we have the period of judges where these judges then serve as the leaders. And when you come to the, the end of the period of judges, you run across a guy named Samuel. And you know that Samuel was a leader among the people. And the, Samuel wanted the people to look for spiritual leadership. But they said, no, we want a king. And so Israel, about 3,000 years ago, appointed their first king, and his name was Saul. And Saul was um, a good guy in some ways and a bad guy in many ways, and Saul had a lot of problems. And so because Saul kept messing up, God said, I'm going to anoint another king. And so Samuel goes to David and anoints David as king while Saul was still king. So we've got three kings that you can remember as you read through Scripture. You've got You've got Saul, you've got David, you've got David's son Solomon. After that, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, divided the kingdom and Israel has been in upheaval now since that time. But the greatest time in Israel, the history of Israel was when David was the king. But before David was the king, Saul was the king. David was anointed king. Saul said, my son Jonathan should be the king. So Saul determined that he was going to do everything that he could rather than concede to David. He was going to destroy David and kill David. And so he took all of the strength of his military. He took his most strategic thinkers and they began to pursue David to try to kill him. And David, a young man, a very young man, is running from Saul for his life. And while he's running from Saul, he probably... Would, would like to find a soft bed to lay down on, somewhere to get a, a hot shower, somewhere to just find something 
to eat, but he's not finding any sleep. He's not finding any rest. He's not finding any friendship. He's not finding any safe place. And so while David's running and while David is exhausted and while David is living like a hunted dog, he stops for a minute and begins to ask the question, where can I find some safety? And his answer is right here in Psalm 16. Now, I don't know what you do to try to provide safety for yourself. Many of us do many things. If you come to my house, there are three or four barriers you've got to get through that are obviously going to wake me up before you actually get to where I'm sleeping because I don't want anybody to come in while I'm sleeping and surprise me. We've got all these safety measures that we take, roads we won't drive down, things we will or won't do, but none of those things ultimately provides the safety that we long for in our heart. And so listen to David as he comes to the conclusion that there is no place of safety in the world. The only place of safety is in a relationship with God. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Then he gives, he gives us in, in the beginning of the text three names, three different names for God. He wants us to have a comprehensive understanding of God. He says, preserve me, O God, that's one, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, there's another name for God. You are my Lord. There is another name for God. I have no good apart from you. There is nothing good in me apart from you. There is nothing good in life apart from you, God. He had to come to a place of exhaustion and being hunted and hopelessness. He had to come to a place of recognizing that there was an anointing and a promise made, and that promise may never come true. And so David, in a bad place, finds a good place. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood will I not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One seek corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There, there are two things that I want you to, to try to grasp this morning in order for us to understand what David is going through and in order for us to understand what the text is teaching. Number one, I think we need to understand what uh, a refuge is. And David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. If you go to Numbers, uh, Numbers 35, verses 9 to 15, we see uh, the establishment of the cities of refuge. What are the cities of refuge? The cities of refuge are places where people can go who have uh, accidentally killed someone. And if you go to the city of refuge, those who are seeking, seeking vengeance, those who are seeking to even the score, those who are seeking justice can't get to you in the city of refuge. The city of refuge is a safe place. But until you get to the city of refuge, 
The, the brother of that guy that you killed is coming after you. That's the way things operated in the culture. And then justice was determined once you got to the city of refuge. So David said, look, I'm being chased. I'm being viewed as a guilty man. I'm being viewed as a criminal by the authorities, by the governmental authorities, he said. And I need to find a place of rest, of refuge, a place of safety. What is the definition of the term refuge? It's a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. It's a place where you can feel safe. It's a place where you can find rest. It's like someone who is seeking asylum. So we need to understand what a refuge is, but I'm convinced that the term refuge means nothing to us unless we can understand what a refugee is. Unless we can understand what a refugee is. You see, unless you see yourself as a refugee, then you cannot understand the value of a refuge. So what then is a, a refugee? A refugee is a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. What is a refugee? A refugee is a, a person who is desperate a person who is at the end of their rope and their resources. A refugee is a person who feels alone and without hope. A refugee is a person who has more questions than answer. answers. A person that is humbled and broken with where they find themselves in, in this life. So we can't understand. This text means nothing to us unless we understand what a, a refuge is. And we can't understand what a refuge is unless we see ourselves as a refugee. Let me, let me give you uh, some contrast to that. If you're at home in this world, if you are safe in this world, if you love this world, if you are comfortable in this world, if you are strategizing to ensure that everything lines up for you just like you want it to in this world, you are not a refugee and you don't need a refuge. So if you can this morning, I would invite you to kick back, maybe catch a nap or do some popular internet searches or listen to a podcast because I don't have anything for you this morning if you don't see yourself as a, a refuge, refugee needing a refuge. You're in the wrong place. But if you're struggling, if you don't feel safe, I would invite you to lean in this morning because David has something for us. If you're comfortable, I would ask you to ask God to make you uncomfortable so that we could get the blessing that comes from knowing who he is. The first thing I want you to see from this text about the refuge and about being a refugee is this. When we find this refuge that David is talking about, we find unbreakable relationships. We find unbreakable relationships. David, David has been in a lot of relationships. He was in a relationship with his brothers, and his brothers were angry with him. He was in a relationship with Jonathan, and that was uh, soon to end. He was in a, a wonderful relationship with Saul, and that didn't pan out. David is running. David is on his own, and David finds this refuge, this place of unbreakable relationship that is found only in God. And the first thing that he says is this, preserve me, O God, for in you 
in relationship with you, I take refuge. What does the word preserve mean? The word preserve means to watch over, to stand guard over. Watch over me so that I can feel safe and I can rest. The word preserve means to keep your eyes open. So God, would you please keep your eyes open so that I can shut mine for just a few minutes. As you get older and you struggle with rest and sleep and so many things are going on in your life and so many things are happening that you can't resolve or fix. And I don't know about you, but I really do wish I could sleep for eight straight hours. I can't tell you. It's been decades since I slept for four hours, much less eight hours. And the psalmist is so exhausted. He's so tired. He's so overspent. He's so worn out. He's saying, Lord, would you preserve me? Lord, would you stay awake so that I can get some sleep? It's like a parent, a loving parent watching over a sick child. You go into the room. I don't know what you do, but I would go into the room four or five times a night and I would just look, are they still breathing? If I couldn't see them breathing, I'd put my hand on them to feel, to, just to see if they're breathing. I want to know that they're okay. I do that with my grandkids when they come and stay with me. The last thing I want is my kids coming back and finding you know, that I didn't take good care of their kids. And so it's, it's, it's this sleeplessness, worrying about watching over. And David says, I'm going to the city of refuge, and I want to be in a relationship with you, God. And the name for God there is the name El. It's the God who's in control. God, things are out of control. God, I don't have control. God, I'm running around trying to figure things out, and I can't figure it out, and I'm exhausted. Can I go to you, God? God who is in control and can I rest and will you watch? Will you preserve me? David is pleading with God to take over and be in control of his interior world and of his exterior world. To control his heart and to control his circumstances and to control his enemies. I'm going to turn it over to you, O oh God. The, 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 the number one thing most of us spend our time doing is protecting ourselves. We just do. We, we put on facades to protect ourselves. We call it a pose. We feign self-righteousness righteousness to protect ourselves. We create images to protect ourselves. I want to project an image and protect myself. Rarely do we become a desperate people who cry out to God, who plead with Him, saying, Oh God, I'm at the end of my rope. Would you please help me and preserve me? We have strategies that we use to try to preserve ourselves, and in preserving ourselves, we lose ourselves. So the psalmist says, Preserve me, uh, oh God. Preserve me, the God who was in control. But then he talks about his relationship with God. And notice what he, he says in the text. I say to the Lord, and, and, and when he says I say, what David is saying is my soul, the depth of my being, the core of my inner man is crying out to God. And the Lord here is Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. What, what, is, what is your name? I am, I am Yahweh. What does it mean that Yahweh would tell us his name? You tell somebody your name when you want to have a relationship with them. 
When you don't want to have a relationship, you're like, I'm not telling you, what is your name? I'm not telling you my name. I'm not giving you my identity. I don't want you to have any connection with me. Yahweh comes on the scene and says, this is my name. I am Yahweh. I want to have connection with you. I want to have relationship with you. I want to be in fellowship with you. And so David says, I say to the Lord who I am in fellowship with, I say to the Lord who wants to be in fellowship with me, I say to the God who is in control, El, I say to the God who cares and has introduced himself to me as Yahweh, I say, you are my Lord, you are Adonai. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords over all things. So while David is being chased by King Saul, he goes to the refuge and he gets to hang out with King Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords that has been given the name above all names. That's what we find in the refuge. And David then says, David concedes, I believe David joyfully proclaims because he's so sick and tired of trying to get good out of himself. He's so sick and tired of performing. He's so sick and tired of trying to protect himself. He says, there is no good in me if it doesn't come from God. That is, a, that is a proclamation of humility. Folks, our pride and our arrogance and our self-sufficiency just stinks. It just stinks. And we find it so prevalent in, in Christianity, our performance. David said, no, there's nothing good in me apart from you. And he's essentially proclaiming that the supreme value in my life, Lord, is you. You are my redeemer. You are my refuge. I am a refugee and I have nothing. And I have nothing that I can hook myself onto or cling to or be secure in. All I have is you. I cannot look outside of you for any good to come to me. But then David, not only are there unbreakable, this unbreakable relationship with God, this God who wants to be in relationship with us, but he sees this unbreakable relationship with other refugees other people in the refugee camp, other people that have come to God for the refuge. He said, as for the saints in the land, in the city of refuge, in this place of safety, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Those who think they have a relationship with God but are relationally selective or resistant do not have a relationship with God. It's interesting that David is not saying, God, I've got a relationship with you, and by God, I don't need anybody else. I'll make it on my own. No, those who are relationally resistant or who are relationally selective, those who cannot understand their condition and their place and don't want to hang out with other refugees like them who are desperate, are, are people that I would say don't have a relationship with God to begin with. They think they have some goodness in and of themselves that they have to bring that causes them to be aloof of other people, and there's no place for that in the Christian life. So David is now proclaiming that not only is he attached to, uh, to the God who controls and the God who cares and the God who should be submitted to as Lord, but he's saying that I'm also connected and attached to these people that are refugees like me and have the same relationship to God. That's the beauty of community. They have experienced attachment. There is mutual dependence. They are welcomed into the presence of the protector. They're experiencing relationship with the Father. 
But then he goes on to verse 4 and he talks not only about attachment but detachment. There are those who are attached to the Father and by virtue of them being attached to the Father in their desperation, calling out to Him to preserve them and, and attached to each other because of their desperation. Fellow refugees, that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of the church. We're just fellow refugees crying out to God to help us, walking through this world in an unsafe place, being chased by sin, being chased by those who would persecute true believers, being made fun of, being ostracized. We come together and we find out fellow refugees that are suffering, that are struggling. God, help us when we come together and we act like we've got it all together. God, help us when we come together and we're finding comfort in this world and we bring that into the body of Christ. But there are those who don't want that. And he says in verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. He's, he's referencing Genesis 3.16. In Genesis 3.16, Eve is told that, that her sorrow will be multiplied in childbirth. There is going to be these, these multiple sorrows that come. There are those who reject El and Yahweh and Adonai. There are those who reject running to God the refuge. There are those who run to and hasten after other gods and hijack their created purpose. There are those who dilute, dilute worship of the one true God. And if that's you, you're multiplying sorrows. In other words, if you will not humble yourself and see yourself as a refugee and say, dear God, I desperately need you. If you will not lay aside your pride, if you will not lay aside your self-righteousness, if you will not lay aside all of the false comfort that you're getting in this world and recognize that you need Christ and Christ alone, then you are not abandoned to him, but you are being abandoned from him and you're chasing after other gods. Any other god that you bow down to, that you worship, that you give yourself to, that you give your energy to is another God in competition with the God. And so there is this attachment that we see that David longs for with the God that he's outlining in the text, but there are those who would say, we don't want that. We will detach ourselves from him. We beg people regularly to come to the Father, to come be a part of the family, to come gather with us for worship, to come join us for life group and for DNA, to come do life with us. And I, I confess to you that it is imperfect in all of its forms and broken because we're broken people. We're a bunch of refugees trying to figure some things out, and the only way we can figure it out is just go spend time with the Lord. Some life groups are, in some cases, uh, to you, maybe, maybe sterile and lifeless, maybe uncomfortable. Maybe some folks are going to life group because they're checking boxes, but that is not our goal. Our goal is to be a people who understand that they're refugees and they're gathering together to find refuge in each other and in Christ. The God of the refuge and to experience life with refugees and there is sweet fellowship in that. And so there is... There is, there is this place of unbroken relationships in the refuge. Secondly, there is also this place of undisturbed contentment. If you will look at um, verse number, um, I think it's verse number five. I've got ink all over my Bible, so I can, there it is, verse five. He says in verse five, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There, there, there are these unbroken relationships, but secondly, uh, get this, there is this undisturbed contentment. David was thinking of Numbers chapter 18 and verse number 20. And in Numbers 18, 20, um, Moses is writing and he's saying to Aaron and his family, he said, Aaron and your family, you don't get land. You don't get land. You don't get the inheritance of a land. You don't have land to pass down from one generation to another generation. So the Levites were a landless people. He said, why? Because you don't need land as, an import, as a portion. You don't need land as an inheritance. You have me as your portion. You have me as your inheritance. And so David is saying, Lord, you are my portion. Lord, you are my cup. Lord, you are my inheritance. And if I have you, I have undisturbed contentment. So here's what David's saying in the text. Number one, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. The word portion is land, real estate, a lot. You have given me my cup. You have given me the word cup. We associate that with the concept of manna. You've given me my daily bread. It means, God, I'm looking to you for my provision. It means that I'm looking to God for what he wants me to have, not what I want him to give me. Think about that for a minute. I'm looking to God for what He wants me to have. So when, when David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, you hold, you are in control, you determine my lot. He's saying, you have assigned this to me, and I'm looking for you to give me what you want me to have, not what I think I want. When, when we go to God and we say, God, this is what I want, give me what I want, we set ourselves up for discontentment. But, but when we're satisfied in Him and what He gives us, then we are a contented people. There is un, undisturbed contentment. He says, secondly, you have made my lot secure. You hold my lot. God controls outcomes and circumstances. He is referring to general circumstances. He's saying, I am secure in whatever circumstance sovereign God has put me in because he is with me. I am secure in whatever circumstance sovereign God has put me in because he knows what's best for me. He put me where I am. And then, then he says in the text, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. He is content with what God has meted out to him. God drew the boundary lines. God determined his inheritance. God is in control of all things. And if God has done it, it is good because God is good. And David is saying, I am, kin I am, I am content. What we have to understand when David says this, Lord, you're my lot, you're my portion, you draw the lines, you determined what happens from the time that I get up until the time that I go to bed, you have determined that Saul would do the things that he is doing, you have determined that I would be going through this very extremely difficult, uh, life-threatening time, but I am trusting you and God, I am going to be content. You see, when David said, Lord, you are my refuge, he, he didn't go and find a, a walled city to go to. What he's talking about is something that's happening inside of him. 
And when he's, when he's saying, Lord, you're my lot, you're my portion, you're my cup, these are the things that you've given me, these are the things that you've provided me, these are the circumstances that I find myself in, God didn't change the circumstances, but God understood that, that or David understood that God was in control of the circumstances, and that changed everything in David's heart about the circumstances that he was going through. There was this undisturbed contentment. Let me, let me let you in on a few secrets this morning as we consider this text. Circumstances are not the source of your and my contentment. Circumstances are not the source of our contentment. People are not the source of our contentment. Uh, if my wife would just behave better, if she would treat me better, right? If she would cook better, if she would listen to me better, I'd be happier. No, you wouldn't. If you're not happy with her the way she is, you're not going to be happy with her no matter what kind of changes she makes because the contentment is an issue of your heart, not of the people that you're in relationship with. In fact, a lot of times when we get into this, my life would be better if my relationships were better, we put ourselves in a position of superiority over people, looking down on them, thinking that we're okay. We're okay. If everybody around me would just get their junk together, then my world would be okay. Circumstances are not the source of your contentment. People are not the source of your contentment. Uh, bigger lie than all of those, material possessions are not the source of your contentment. Material possessions are not the source of your contentment. I was, I was uh, listening to a conversation on TV, and a guy has had billions of dollars, but all of a sudden he's committed a crime, and he and his wife were having a conversation, and, and he said, we're going to lose everything. And she says, we're going to lose everything. Yes, we're going to lose everything. He said, well, she said, well, what are we going to have left? She said, we're only going to have about $300 million left. And she said, how are we going to make it on that? Right? That's the way we think about material possessions, though. We think we need them to be content. Material possessions are not the source of our con contentment. I, I am not the source of your contentment. Whether or not somebody else gives you your way or does things the way you should, maybe you think, man, I'd be happy if the preacher would preach better or if the ministries at the church were better. I am not the source of your contentment. In fact, I will go on to say this in conclusion to this point. If you cannot find your contentment in God, you will never find contentment. David finally, in exhaustion, said, Lord, you determine all things. And you have me where you have me. And perhaps you have some reason, and I don't understand it. You have made promises. I have been anointed king. I sure don't feel like a king right now. But all I can do is trust that you're in control of right where you have me, and I'm going to rest in that because you are good. If we do not find our contentment in God, we will not find it in any other place. So the refuge is a place of unbroken relationships. The refuge is a place of undisturbed contentment. Thirdly, the refuge is a place of life-giving resources. Notice what he says. He said, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are these life-giving resources that we find in, in the refuge. What, what are these life-giving resources? There is, there is counsel from God and from God's Word that brings me to my knees, that brings me to the place of worship. When, when David says, I bless the Lord, he, he literally means I kneel before the Lord. I fall down before the Lord and submit myself to His Word, to His counsel. When I hear God's counsel, it brings me to a place of worship, of worship. So there is this counsel that comes. It's counsel that brings me to a place of worship. Secondly, in verse 7, he says, there is sleeplessness that brings me to introspection and repentance. In the night also, my heart instructs me. When he's talking about in the night, he's talking about when he goes to bed at 10 o'clock and he tries to go to sleep, but he can't sleep and he's tossing and he's turning and his mind is thinking and he's wondering and he's trying to figure things out and conviction is falling upon his heart. That's, that's the, the, the word that's given there instruction would be perceived as something that was corrective when you, when you can't go to sleep it doesn't mean you need to get up and watch tv when you can't can't go to sleep it doesn't mean that you need to take more melatonin when you can't go to sleep maybe you need to toss and you need to turn and you may, may need to wonder god what are you saying to me what are you trying to get to in my heart things are stirring inside of me and i need sleep i desperately need sleep and david said there are these times when i i couldn't sleep and in the night my heart was turning and i found these things that i needed to literally repent of and turn from going on deep within my soul sleeplessness that brings me to introspection and repentance that is a life-giving resource Thirdly, a perpetual presence that is all-consuming. He, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. It, it's, it's, he's talking about face-to-face. -face. The, the Lord, I, I'm in this intimate fellowship and relationship with the Lord. We are knee-to-knee. -knee. I'm not having to look to the side so that I can see Him. And if I do look to the side, the Lord is going to grab me by the face and He's going to straighten my head up and say, No, look at me. There is this perpetual presence that is all-consuming. David said, I've set the Lord right in front of me. I'm going to keep my eyes on Him. He is going to be conspicuous. He is going to be in my line of sight. He is going to be all that I look at. I want to be close to Him. I want to be close to Him. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I will set the Lord before me. What does it mean that He is at my right hand? It's usually your defense attorney that's at your right hand when you're in a court. You're being accused. You're being attacked. You're being lied about. They're trying to kill you. You've got the king chasing you. You've got all of the governmental authorities against you. But He says, wait a minute, I'm going to set the Lord before me? And I'm going gonna, 
uh, and he is going to be at my right hand. And if you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, who stands with us. The text says, even when we sin. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he rose victorious over an enemy that we could not defeat, and he stands. He loves us so much. He cares so much about us. He wants us to make it. He's standing beside us before Almighty God, the Holy Father, who would have every right to crush us. And Jesus said, Father, I've already stood between him and you and borne his penalty. He is not guilty. He cannot be convicted. The, the, the Son is standing at our right hand as we sit before the Father. And he says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad. There is an advocate that is standing beside me. There is a stability that will not let me fall. He said, I will not be shaken no matter what's going on around me. And, and, and he says, there is security in life and in death. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. I'm going through life. At the, at the depth of my being, there is joy. In, in even it, it, is, it is so prevalent in, in, the, in the core of my being that my whole being rejoices, even in the midst of all the problems. My flesh also dwells secure. There, there, there is a God who will go with you and be at your right hand and squarely in front of you, no matter what circumstance you and I are going through in this life. He will always be there. And from the psalmist's perspective, he's, he, says, he says this. He said, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let my Holy One see corruption. He's saying, look, this God who is with me inside of me. Again, I didn't run to a safe house. I don't have anybody around me. I'm still physically all alone. I've still got Saul and all of his army chasing after me. There's still a group of people with a price on my head that are trying to kill me. But I've come to God and I've recognized that there is joy when I go to Him as my refuge. And when I go to Him as my refuge, He is protecting everything within me. He's protecting everything about me. And even if Saul gets to me, and I'm killed, I'm still going to be okay. The same God who protects us in life is the same God who protects us in death. But now we know this text also is, is, is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why this is a messianic psalm. It's been quoted in Acts chapter 2 by Peter and in Acts chapter 13 by Paul. And it's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to Christ who will, who will raise up from the dead future tense from this point forward, guaranteeing that those who rest in Him, that go to Him for a refuge, will be promised eternal life, will be promised to be raised from the dead, will be promised resurrection. There is this life-giving resource. And then if you will, go down to to verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. You want to know where to go? You want to know what to do? Go to the refuge. The God of the refuge, the God who is the refuge, has laid it out for us. 
and he will make it known to you. The, the, the God of the refuge, who is your portion, who is your lot, who is your inheritance, the God of the refuge who is sovereign over all things, the God of this refuge wants to give you life, wants to give you joy, wants to give you assurance that even the hardship, the difficulty, the sickness, even the death that you are experiencing or a loved one is experiencing is, is the path of life. He's made his way known to us. In your presence there is fullness of joy. I was reading through this text yesterday and, and um, I, don't, I don't know what this text does to you. Maybe, maybe, you're, you know, maybe it's doing for you what it's doing for me, which honestly just a lot of truth here. And I believe it in my head. But I'm not sure I'm experiencing, experiencing it in my heart. You know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes circumstances happen and I can't get my mind off the circumstances. Sometimes circumstances happen and until the circumstances, don't, until the circumstances change, I don't want to think about God. Right? And I want God to relieve the circumstances. I want God to make the pain go away i got a list of people in our church that I'm praying for, and I, and I wrote to somebody last week. I said, I wish that I was close enough to God so that when I asked him to do what I wanted him to do, he would do it for me. Now, I was in jest about 49%, and I was serious about 51% because I don't want to suffer, and I don't want anybody else to suffer, and I don't want to hurt, and I don't want anybody else to hurt, and I don't want to die, and I don't want anybody else to die, and I don't want to have problems, and I don't want anybody else to have problems. I want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to get along. I want you to have everything that you want in your life. I want to have everything that I want in my life. And so I, I struggle with a guy who has been made promises and not experiencing the promises. And now everybody hates him. I hate to be hated. I don't like to be disliked. I don't like to be criticized. And now the world has turned on him, and he's running for his life, and he can't find any relief, and his circumstances don't change. And now all of a sudden he's saying, although nothing has changed, I found some things in God that change everything. And I'm just like, I'm just not there, but I want to be there. So I stopped and I went and I said, I'm going to go out and I put up this swing for my grandkids that you can kind of lay in like a hammock. And I said, I'm going to lay here for a few minutes. And no sooner had I gotten out there, my wife said, I want to come lay down with you. And I'm like, I can't be spiritual with my wife laying here beside me in the hammock, you know, just throwing her leg over me, got her arm over on my throat. And I'm like, if this thing breaks, her, her elbow's going to come down and crush my Adam's apple. And, and I just wanted to go out there and lay and look under the trees and think about this God who is everything, no matter what's going on inside of me or around me. And I can completely trust him. And I want to get to that place, but I know I'm not there. And he wants you to be in that place too. And folks, listen to me. Until we get there, we're never going to find true joy and contentment. He is absolutely enough. He gives us a clear path. He gives us his real presence that we can't see that David was experiencing. And David is saying right now, 
at your right hand. You are, dis- you are dispensing. A God he can't see while he's being hunted down like a dog, he's saying, God, at your right hand, your right hand, you're just, you're just giving out pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. There are these life-giving resources. And finally, there is this unquenching rejoicing. He, he, he says, therefore, and I go back to verse 9, therefore, um, there is something that is all-consuming that transcends circumstances when we truly experience God. When we experience who He is and what He's done and who we are in Him and what makes us valuable. There is gladness in my innermost being. And I would ask you, are you experiencing gladness in your innermost being? Or is there a grinding discontentment and perpetual cloud. As you go through life, is it just a situation where nothing's ever right? Nothing's ever right. Hey, can we be honest and say that's probably where most of us live? Nothing's ever right. The psalmist has nothing going right for him. But he says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells in security. I don't have to worry about my future. He will not, he, he will not. God does not abandon his friends to hell. God does not let his holy ones see corruption. God makes known to me the path of life. In God's presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. My whole being rejoices, he said. And in your presence there is joy forevermore. Where are you today? I, I want to I ask you to join me in the, in the refuge. I hope you didn't come today just to, just to get some stuff in your head, although we need stuff in our head, but it needs to move from our head into our heart. And I pray that the, the Spirit of God would convict you like He has convicted me and that we would see that there are a lot of things happening around us and there are a lot of things happening within us and some things need to change and there are things that we can't change but when we run to Him and when we know Him and when we trust Him and when we rest in Him although the things around us may not change and I'm not offering that to you this morning the things within us will absolutely change And our eyes will see things like they've never seen before. And our heart will rejoice like it's never rejoiced before. If you'll run, if you'll run to the refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I ask you simply today to take refuge in him.